You're listening to a resource from the Field Church in Mandeville, Louisiana. It is our joy to glorify God by treasuring Jesus in the preaching of His Word. We pray this resource will be a tool used to aid in your relationship with Christ in addition to your local church. Blood of Jesus, nothing but the blood. Nothing but the blood of Jesus, nothing but the Well, good morning, everybody. I'm certainly blessed to be with you this morning for the purpose of hearing from God through his word. So to do that, would you please turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 18, verses 18 through 23. Luke chapter 18, verses 18 through 23. These are the verses that the Lord in his providence has um, given us uh, to focus on this morning. And, um, and this is, these are the verses that he speaks to us this morning. This is his word. As we make our way verse by verse through the book of Luke. And so before we get into the text... I want to draw your attention to something you should have found in your seat, and hopefully you didn't sit on it. Everyone get one of these? One of these bookmarks that you should have found um, in your seat. Y'all got one? Yeah. As promised, um, this is the Bible reading plan that will really help you know the New Testament in the next two years. And as all of you know, we just completed a one-year Bible reading plan. Give everybody a round of applause for who did it. Boo everybody who don't. Boo. Just kidding. Don't do that around here. And uh, we took the month of February to give time for those who were a little bit behind to catch up and to finish. And I want to tell you that in light of this past year's Bible reading plan, I've heard countless stories of people finishing that plan um, and being so proud of themselves for finishing that plan, giving themselves a pat on the back to be able to say that they read through the entire Bible, right? And of course, not just being able to say that they, that they did that, but also doing a few things um, and realizing a few things because they did that. First, that they now have a better grasp on the meta-narrative of the scriptures, right? And so they see the whole meta-narrative of the scripture. From the Bible reading plan last year of doing the entire Bible in one year, I've heard stories of people say how they can see how each literary unit of the Bible fits within the grander story of the Bible, right? And that's how you should see it because the placement of the passage within the whole storyline informs the true meaning of that passage, right? People have realized that. Also, people have realized how truly the gospel of Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ himself 
are the very storyline of the Bible. People say, why do you always talk about the gospel? Why is it always the constant focus? Because it's the constant focus of the entire Bible, right? In the New Testament, um, everything is described in light of Christ. And in the Old Testament, everything is pointing to the coming of Christ. And so many in our church have also, in addition to seeing the gospel, seeing the passage and seeing the meta narrative, people have also told me from reading through the entire Bible last year that they've understood verses, stories, characters, teachings that they've never known before, right? I never knew this guy was in the Bible. I never knew his story. And uh, until you read the whole thing for yourself. And people have told me about the clarity that they now have about the Bible, that they have confidence that they can be accurate and they uh, can share it and share the teachings with other people. So many people wonder why they don't have confidence about the Bible. And I said, well, have you ever read the whole thing? And they say, no. I mean, you wouldn't expect to have confidence in any other area of life. You wouldn't expect to have confidence in playing the piano if you just never played the piano. You wouldn't say, why don't I have confidence in playing the piano? Uh, do you ever play it? No. Okay, that's your problem, right? And so people want to have confidence about the Bible, though, without reading it. So people have described the confidence they now have from reading through it this past year. Also, people have talked about how they've seen, because we've read various places in the, past, in the scriptures all at once, they've seen how scripture interprets scripture right? So they've learned now how to cross-reference and how scripture, interpreting scripture is what brings most clarity, right? Um, you don't get clarity by just, you know, going to a dictionary when you see something in the Bible that you want to have more clarity about. Let me go to the dictionary and figure that out. The Bible brings clarity to itself. So go to another passage. First, you start within the book, then you start within that same author's writings. Then you move to the same genre. Then you move to the same testament. Then you move to the Bible at large. And those other scriptures will interpret the scripture that you're in. And so then they've also tell me how impactful it is for applying verses to their lives. This isn't just for knowledge's sake, right? If you just have, you know the reason why people with knowledge uh, sometimes come off a little bit different when you're looking at them and they have knowledge about the scripture, it's easier to have the knowledge and not have a love for God, right? Than it is to have a knowledge and a love for God. And so knowledge should always push you to the love for God. Some people you're just like, yeah, I know they really want to stand on the truth, but they just, there's something off there, right? And it's because maybe they've forsaken loving God, loving the truth that they actually have come to understand, Right? And so this Bible reading plan has pushed people to love God and the gospel even more as well and have transformed life, not just knowledge. Many have shared it with their friends. Many have shared it on their social media stories and reading every day with their spouse every morning, Dickie Lyons, right? Have you seen those stories? Okay. But that's been a real true encouragement to us, right? People completing this plan with their family. Now, listen, let me just tell you this. Also, because our church has committed to reading all of God's word this past year, our church has really grown up. Our church has matured. Uh, people are sanctified. People have been washed clean. 
God wants a pure bride. You know that? That's the purpose of why you're here and part of the church and why you listen to preaching and grow in your faith. He wants a pure bride. That's what he's doing to true believers. He's making them pure, holy. That's the purpose of your salvation, right? And he's been washing us clean by the what? The word, by reading through the whole Bible this past year. And, uh, and so, you know what? I think we're gonna do this reading plan probably every few years alternating with the plan that I'm about to explain and maybe other, another couple of plans over the years. But now let me move into this one. You know, one of the difficulties that many people, including myself, experience in reading the Bible is remembering what they read, right? Can you relate to that? Um, they can't quite remember exactly what it said. I mean, most people can't even remember what they read that very morning, right? And not only do you not know what was said, but you have a difficult time remembering where it was said. So you want to know the verse as close to verbatim as possible in your mind, and you want to know the address of that verse. And many people have difficulty knowing either one, right? And it's difficult to remember, to recite, to reference when you're moving on the next day, right? And you're just constantly moving on. And, and so many people really even experience the difficulty of understanding because these are complex things. So when you're going to penetrate meaning of the Bible, not only have you have trouble remembering, referencing, reciting, but you have trouble even penetrating the meaning if every day you're just moving on, right? And so it's hard to penetrate without reading things more than once. It's also difficult at first glance to understand the context because there's a progression and a flow of thought and a context and a tone to what's being said. And you got to know what's ahead to really understand the meaning of what you're reading. You know, there's no reason I, I, I'm not going to preach even verse chapter one, verse one of the book of Luke until I've read the entire book of Luke, because then I, I, I'm preaching a verse that and I have no idea where this thing is going, Right. And so it's difficult to understand the context without seeing the whole thing. And so you're unable to reference it, unable to memorize it or remember it, unable to understand the progression of the flow of thought, you understand the context, penetrate the meaning. I mean, it's difficult. And so this study is designed to help you know the New Testament like the back of your hand. Um, and that's really where we live. We live in the new covenant. And so you'll read the same book of the Bible every day for two weeks. And in two years, you'll know the New Testament. And we thought originally that we would do this, each book, would, we would do it for 30 days. And miscalculated, that would take us four years. Okay? I said we were going to read every book of the Bible for 30 days, not for two weeks. And we were going to finish it in Oh, a little over two years, miscalculation, right? It really would take four years. And I think we should do that. I really debated, and I think we can. But I think we're gonna do that next time, baby steps, right? So this time it's gonna be every book of the Bible, you read the whole thing for two weeks, and then you move on to the next book. Now, except for the larger books, the longer books we've divided, some, for instance, into thirds. So you read the first third for two weeks, second third for two weeks, third third for... All right, you got it. 
And by the end of two weeks for each book or six weeks for larger books or whatever, you'll know what is in that book. You'll know it so well that you'll probably have memorized most of it or without even trying to memorize it. And you'll be able to reference it. You'll know what chapter it's in. You'll know even where to see it in your mind and even probably see it on the page, right? Someone asks you about a verse, you'll not only know what book it's in, you'll not only know what chapter it's in, but you'll even see a picture of the column probably in your mind. You'll be able to cross-reference it on your own. You'll have a better grasp, better grasp of the meaning, the whole thrust of the book. You'll know what's ahead. You'll read it over and over again. You won't easily forget what you're reading. So for instance, we start with 1 John. You'll have, you read all of 1 John, uh, and it'll take you about 20 to 25 minutes, and you do that every day for two weeks, right? Then you pray, and then you're done. And when you're done with two weeks, you move on. And let me say this before we move into the text. You'll have also meditated upon the scripture by doing this. Meditation is what you must do if you wish to understand the Bible. Many people miss this. You begin with reading and you talk about reading the Bible, but you must understand that the Bible teaches that understanding and knowledge come from meditation right? Meditating. So Psalm 119, this section, I could teach a whole morning on it because this, these verses right here are on meditation. It says this, oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies for it is ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers for your testimonies are my meditation. Let me point out a few things in this. Verse 97, it says, the, the top verse, the, the first verse, this is 97, 98, 99. It says that meditation happens because you love God's word. Oh, how I love your law. Therefore, it is my what? Meditation. But I think it's ambiguous a little bit because it could be the reverse. Oh, how I love your law. Almost in a sense, it has been my meditation. And therefore, I've come to love it. So what happens is meditation happens because you love God's word. You just want to think about it, meditate on it. It's the fruit and the evidence that you love the word of God. But the reverse is true. Loving God's word will be a result of meditating on it. So you meditate on God's word and then you'll grow to love it. So that's the fruit. Secondly, meditation means that the word of God is always with you. Look what it says. Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies, for it is what? Ever with me. How is it always with you? Well, because you're meditating on it all the time. It's in your mind. It's in your heart, right? You want God's word to always be with you. You wish you could pull out like a pocket reference Bible book everywhere you go so you can know, gosh, I wish I could say this or that or whatever. I forgot what it said, right? Meditate on the word and it will be like the word is always with you, right? And then it says specifically that it makes you wise, even wiser than your what? Enemies. I bet you some of you would like that to be true of your life, right? I wish I was wiser than my enemies, right? Third, verse 99, it says this, meditation will make you even wiser than your teachers. Now watch out now. Don't try me, all right? Just kidding. I hope that all of you become more knowledgeable about the scriptures than I could ever dream. 
Listen, it, it won't be because you necessarily read more in breadth that you know more than your teachers. It's because you'll have thought more in depth that you'll know more than your teachers. Getting the meaning right, thinking through different facets, different implications, asking questions, looking at the connections of thought, the flow of, of, the, of the thought, becoming more and more familiar with the passage. Teachers might start out seeming to know more than you, but if their understanding is superficial at all, it's going to be exposed. Their lack of understanding is going to be exposed by you coming to a deep, true, accurate, clear knowledge and understanding of the word of God. You ever have that happen? Well, this person taught me the word of God a lot of my life, but now that I'm meditating on the word, understanding its true meaning, having clear and accurate interpretation of the scriptures, I'm seeing that their interpretation and their teaching was faulty. That's going to come from you meditating on the word. However, on the other side, if you've had good Bible teachers, the road to where they are and even beyond where they are is meditating on the scriptures. Makes you wiser than even your teachers. So let me open up my life to you for just a second. Um, Chad laughed in the first service when I said that I have an obsession in my thought life, right? Um, I can't ever shut it off. It's difficult for me to, sh to shut off my, my thought life. My mind just keeps going. And Chad has to help me to say, hey, stop obsessing and thinking about things that don't matter, right? Direct that to the word that does matter to help explain it to us. I mean, I'll pause movies. My wife can attest, my daughter too. I can pause, I'll pause movies and think about sentences for like 30 minutes until I understand every facet, implication, and reason behind what was said, right? I have just an obsession about words and thinking in that way, and um, it's really actually frustrating, right? But here's what I've also realized, that it's a blessing, because I have stopped when my Bible reading is in front of me, or my, I'm listening to sermons, which I'm constantly doing, and I'll pause that, or I'll stop my reading, and I'll just sit and think for 30 minutes. Until I can figure out what was said, have complete understanding of what was said, and even package it in such a way that I can easily reference it in my mind, and then I'll move on. And I won't move on until that happens. And that's what's caused me to know the Bible. So you wanna know the Bible? Meditate. Meditate on the scriptures. Think, stop and think about what's said for prolonged periods of time. And now let me say one more thing before we move on because we got to move here. Because you'll be reading the same thing for two weeks, right? It'll also give you time for supplements, Bible reference supplements to help you understand. For instance, I can recommend that every time you start a new book of the Bible, you could go out into our lobby, take one of those MacArthur New Testament commentaries, take a picture of the beginning few pages of, the, of, of each book, which tells you the author, the recipient, the context, um, the issues in the culture at the time, um, interpretive challenges, like what are some verses that are really hard to understand. And then you could read that before you start each book, right? 
So you could use good commentaries even along the way because you're reading the same thing to help you understand what you're reading as supplemental reading. You got to understand that the Bible is alien to you. It is written by historical people in a historical time, in a historical context, in a historical language (laughs) that is totally foreign to you. So you can't, don't misunderstand me by saying that you can just begin to understand everything if you think long enough, right? You'll never be able to understand some of this by thinking long enough unless you have some help. So what we do is we rely on the past illumination of people who have devoted their lives to understanding each passage of scripture, right? Bible reference books. Don't obsess and start buying Christian fad, Christian living books. All these books that come out and they're like this one aspect of application in in, uh, Christianity and you buy it because it seems like it's gonna be the next thing and then it just fades out after a couple weeks. Buy Bible reference books, commentaries, um, uh, uh, you know, sermons um, that have been preached by people long ago that are commenting and explaining the passage. Buy things like that, Bible reference books. Those are timeless because all they're doing is explaining the scriptures, right? And so you can use one of those to help you understand things that you don't understand because you'll be in the same book. And of course, none of this is a substitute for reading the word, but commentaries, listening to sermons, using other Bible references will help you have an accurate meaning of an understanding of the scripture. So let me just encourage you. I've taken long enough, too long actually. And I wanna encourage you to embark on this plan You'll have a week to prepare, right? You start February 1st, so get your mind right, okay? Get ready. And uh, we've provided stickers on the back here. Look at us. Ooh, everyone say ooh. And um, if these stickers are unsatisfactory for you, um, feel free to get your own stickers, okay? And there's a blank spot here, and you just put that there every time you're finished. And um, some people are going to bedazzle this thing, and I hope you do, right? Um, Invite others to join you on this journey. Hold others accountable. So just to be very clear, one book in one sitting, except for larger books, then the designated portion of that book, probably take you about 20, 25 minutes, then spend time in prayer, do that seven days a week for two weeks, for two years, and you'll know the New Testament. You can do it. Deal? All right. Let's move to the text. Luke 18, 18 through 23. Here we go. Lock in. And a ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, all of these I have kept from my youth. And when Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you lack, you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, 
for he was extremely rich. This is an incredible passage. I'm gonna read to verse 30, even though we're only talking about up to verse 23. And then we're gonna cover the next section last week, uh, next week. And that's what's gonna be the last part of this section. So let me read verse 24 through 30. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, then who can be saved? But he said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter said, see, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. Now, here we go. What we're seeing here is that Jesus is continuing to make clear the conditions for conversion. That's what's being taught. Jesus is continuing to make clear the conditions for conversion. This is the doctrine of soteriology. This is the, what the passage is making known here. The teaching is just very clear. There's, it's undeniable. There's no way to not see this that's here. And this is really the teaching of the larger section of Luke. It's the Bible's teaching on salvation. And particularly here, Jesus is making clear how one is saved. That's what's being made known here. It couldn't be any more clear. Uh, how somebody enters the kingdom, right? This is what Jesus has been doing for some time. In verse nine, chapter 18, just a couple of weeks ago, right? We saw that that's where this whole thing started. Conditions for conversion. But it really dates back to chapter 17, verse 20, when Jesus begins describing the kingdom of God, the present spiritual, visible, invisible kingdom, which is salvation, right? And then the future visible kingdom, which is heaven. And so he's describing the kingdom. He's giving clarity about the kingdom to the disciples. And then he moves into chapter 18, verse 9, how someone enters the kingdom. And so, in other words, how somebody is saved, right? And this is the theme here. And this is essentially what Jesus will teach on until he enters Jerusalem in chapter 19, verse 28. So this is how he chooses to finish his journey of training his disciples on his journey to Jerusalem in this discriminating teaching on what is required for salvation, right? This is how he's working here. What has he taught so far? about the conditions. Well, the first condition, chapter nine, or verse nine to verse 14, he says, to be justified, here's the conditions, you must compare yourself to God, not others. Realize his holiness and your sinfulness. You must therefore acknowledge your sinful condition. You must therefore understand that all of your religious works fall short of God's perfect holy standard, and you must trust alone in mercy through Christ, through the person of work in Christ. This is what Matthew 9 really points us to. It says this, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. I have come not to call the righteous, but sinners. It's not that anybody is righteous. Everybody is unrighteous. And it's not that anybody is not a sinner. Everybody is a sinner. 
It's he has come to call those who in comparison to God realize that they're sinners, that they have no righteousness of their own, and that they are sinners falling short of God's glory and plea for mercy. That's, that's who's saved. Verse 15 through 17, the second condition, Jesus then teaches in a similar way, like a child, you must realize you make zero contribution to your salvation. A child makes no contribution to themselves being born. That's the decision on behalf of the parents, right? And just like a child, you make zero contribution to being born again. And that's what separates people. Some people might say, yeah, I believe in what Christ has done. I believe in the cross. I believe in what Jesus has, has done and who he is, right? And I still think I'm also a good person that would solidify my salvation. No, 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 no. That's what separates it. Do you trust in the merit of Christ alone? I have nothing to offer. Literally, just Jesus died for my sins. That's what separates people who have salvation and don't. That detail. And then it's someone who comes under the father's care, like a child, and under the father's rule and jurisdiction. And uh, Ephesians 2 says this, for by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not your own doing. It's the gift of God. Like a parent offers a free gift of love to a child, not a result of works that no one may boast. Now here in verses 18 through 23, Jesus will point out this third condition. And that condition, listen now, is lordship. Lordship, meaning the one who has eternal life, the one who is justified, the one who enters into heaven is the one who has made Jesus Lord of their life. Without making Christ Lord, in other words, you cannot enter the kingdom of God, which is why I've entitled this The Condition for Conversion, Part 3, The Lordship of Christ. Now, Part 3 would include part one being what Pastor Josh preached on two weeks ago. So if you want to put these in a whole package, you would start with what he preached on in, chapter, in verses 9 through 14. And then you'd take what we talked about last week, and then this one would be the third. And so this is part three of these conditions. And let me here tell you that Jesus is pointing out that the issue of lordship making Jesus Lord. No one enters the kingdom without submitting completely to the sovereign Lord. And I want you to notice that this entire section has a warning tone to it. It's negative. It's in the negative form, right? Do you notice that? Because there's more error than there is people getting this thing right. Verse 14, it says, Jesus, this is the first condition. This man went to his house justified rather than the other. Then the second condition, verse 17, Jesus says, whoever does not receive the kingdom like a child shall not enter it. And now here, the third condition, this man rejects Jesus' offer. And so this is in the negative form. People who are unwilling. And I think the reason for this is because the Jews had gotten it wrong. Jesus was very concerned about the danger of thinking you had salvation without knowing the requirements of it. The Jews 
had had superficial faith. John 2 says this, when Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover, many believed in his name when they saw signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people, needed no one to bear witness about man for he knew himself what was in man. Wait a second, I thought that they believed. It was a different kind of belief. It wasn't a saving faith. And so Jesus constantly made clear what was required to enter the kingdom and pointed out the superficiality of where people got this wrong. Luke 13 says this, strive to enter through the narrow door for many, I tell you, will seek to enter it, but what? Not be able to. There's a desire that doesn't lead to salvation. And we're gonna talk about it here. So let me just tell you this, that just like today, so many people get this wrong, we need Jesus to point out to us what is required in order to be saved. And here, Jesus points out the requirement of lordship. Now, let me tell you this. This is the true test. You can't fake this one. This is the most polarizing of all the requirements. You can't fake this. You cannot fake this one. Anybody can say, I believe. Anybody can say, I love God. Anybody can say, of course I believe Jesus died on the cross for my sin. Anybody can say, if I, I have a strong desire for him. I want to know him. I want to live for him. Anybody can say, I want to go to heaven. I want eternal life. Anybody can really actually believe that about themselves too. This is the undeniable test. Lordship. You can't fake this. That's why Jesus says you will know them by their fruit. If someone is consistently, regularly, obediently, living under the commands, the charge, the word, consistently, not ignorant to what the word says. Some people kind of use the Bible once in a while for their studies or this or that and say, but I also have just, I just follow God, I just love him, etc." You might be following some fictitious picture of who Jesus is. It's someone who is regularly living under the obedience to Christ's commands, not perfectly, but consistently. And their life is marked by being led by Jesus and what he says, lordship. You can't fake this. Someone who is born again is someone who has come under the lordship of Christ. If you believe he's God, you believe you're a sinner, you believe you deserve judgment, you believe he died for you, you believe your obedience verifies your belief, you ain't messing around. You are confirming your calling and election by living obediently to Christ. And anyone who doesn't have that trembling and do that for their life, there are serious questions about their salvation. Jesus is demanding lordship here. And it's the true exposer. Luke 9 says this, anyone who comes after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. So now that I've got you feeling all happy about what's in store here, let's move to the divisions of the text. Here's the three things we'll see. Number one, the question about eternal life in verse 18. Number two, the answer about eternal life 
in verses 19 through 22. And number three, I'm sorry, let me say this. Under the answer about eternal life, Jesus is going to, by asking, by answering back this man's question, he's going to expose this man's superficial faith, his failure to meet the conditions. And he's going to expose three failures on this man's part. A false view of God, a false view of self, and a false faith in Christ. So the question that this man asks about eternal life, the answer that Jesus gives about eternal life, which exposes this man's failure to meet the conditions, his false view of God, his false view of self, and his false faith, false faith in Christ. And then thirdly, to just summarize all of it, verse 23, we're going to see the response to the offer of eternal life. So... The question, verse 18, the answer, verses 19 through 22, which exposes a false view of God, verse 19, a false view of self, verses 20 through 21, and a false faith in Christ, verses 22 through 23. And then this man's response, which really just shows all of it in verse 23. So to make these points clear from the text and to show how they lead us to the main point of the section, which is the requirement of lordship, let's take them one at a time. Number one, the question about eternal life. Verse 18, and a ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to what? Inherit eternal life. You ready? This is clear. You want to know what's clear? We got the main point right. We did it. We got the main point right, right? This, is, this couldn't be any more obvious. These verses, and really this whole section, point us to the conditions for what? Conversion, eternal life. We got it right. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Right? That's pretty clear. We got it. This whole thing is going to point us to what is required to have eternal life. Or you could say the conditions for conversion. Right? And this section, really, Jesus just got, finishing, just got finished making clear this man will be justified, this man won't be. The conditions for eternal life. He just got, make, got done making clear you can't enter the kingdom like this. You got to enter it like this. The conditions for conversion. And now here this man starts with essentially who can be saved? How is one saved? How can I be saved? How can I have eternal life? Again, the conditions for conversion. So I don't think you can overestimate the fact or overstate the fact that we are learning from the Lord himself about what is required for salvation. You can think about whatever you want. You, you can... Chalk it up however you want. You can say however you want, whether or not you believe you're saved, you're going to heaven, etc. But you can't overestimate the fact that here's what the Lord says. Here's what he's saying, right? You can't overstate that. He's making it clear. The Lord who saves is making clear how to be saved. So let me tell you that in Matthew's account, verses 9, uh, chapter 19, verses 16 through 30. Mark's account, chapter 10, verses 17 through 31. In all of those accounts, it follows right after this exchange about children. So we're at the same event. We haven't changed events, okay? And this ruler, verse 18, asked him, it says. It's, that's how it starts. Luke alone is the one who tells us that this man was a ruler. And he uses that ruler word six times in his gospel, 
And then he uses it 11 times in the book of Acts, which he also wrote, right? He wrote Luke, and then he wrote what? Acts. And it's oftentimes when he uses this, meaning a ruler of the Pharisees or a leadership opposed to him, religious leader that's opposed to him. Some suggest that this man was a ruler of the synagogues. Probably not the case because Matthew's account tells us that this man was not old. He was what? Young. Luke doesn't tell us that. And so this probably is a influential, wealthy leader in society known for his association with being religiously impressive, with the religious impressive. I mean, think about this. Think about the society we live in. Think about a wealthy, pretty wealthy, influential, moral, associated with the religious and the religious elite, and he's religiously impressive. That's who this man is. And I would just tell you, this is a man who everyone would believe is going to heaven, is saved. And I'm going to show you that. I'm not just making that up. And this is, this is the most countercultural text that you will experience in a long time. So listen now. On the outside, this man was morally and religiously impressive. And Mark points this out. He says the setting was Jesus' journey. As Jesus was setting out on his journey, it says, a man ran up. This is Mark's account of the same verse, of the same situation. A man ran up, knelt before him, and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So it's not even the fact that this man is indifferent. I mean, this is... A man who's running up to him, getting on his knees, is affluent, moral, religious. I mean, he's not calm about this. The picture is that he's anxious about his question. He really cares about his question. And he asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life? This seems like the perfect seeker. The perfect seeker. Moral, religious, affluent, sees a need, asks about eternal life, cares about going to heaven, is eager, gets on his knees, runs up to the right person, which is Jesus. I mean, today's response would be to suggest that Jesus uses, uh, and today's church at large response, most churches and most places and most evangelical Christians would say, okay, Jesus, here's what you do now. Use appropriate language acceptable terms. Don't push this man away. Give him some of the truth, not all of it. And you can tell him more later. He's genuine. Look how sincere he is. Then affirm his salvation and his inclusion into the body. Don't push this genuine seeker away. And yet, that is not what Jesus does here. Jesus gives him the real requirements for salvation. Jesus gives him the whole truth and nothing but the truth that'll truly save the man if he accepts the terms rather than deceiving the man right into hell.
and comforting him right now. No matter how perfect of a seeker this man seems, he asked the right question, he expressed a desperate desire, he came to the right person. And this is what Jesus is going to do. He's gonna require the real requirements and he's gonna leave the rest up to his father. I tell you, there, this, this truth, it, the, there's no other tactic. This truth saves the believer, saves the unbeliever, and sanctifies the believer. We just say it. There's no additional tactic, or else it's evidence that I don't trust in the sufficiency of Scripture. I just say it. We can't do anything else. You can't ensure the outcome in any way, so don't try it, and don't put that burden upon yourself. You just say it. And if God's working in a heart, in a he will draw them to salvation and grow them. And if he's not, you can't do anything until he does. But to try to control that outcome has been the common practice of today. Rather than just being faithful. So he came to the right person. First John 5 says, we know that the son of God, he's come to give understanding so that we might know who is him who is true. And we are in him who is true, the ones who believe in his son, Jesus Christ. He's the true God and eternal life. I mean, he came to the right person. Yet what was most loving to this man is not that Jesus didn't give him all the, all the truth up front. He made clear the true conditions. He expressed what was truly required and he wasn't ready to submit to the Lord as we're gonna see. He, need to, he needed to know where he truly stood. I wonder how many of you need to know where you truly stand with the Lord. And how many of those people in your life need to really truly know where they stand. And he's gonna make it clear and you can have clarity too. How we get this wrong. So he's asking a soteriological question, essentially, what must I do to be saved? How can I guarantee that that will happen? As many seekers do today. But he starts to, his question starts to break down starting here, and we're gonna move forward here. Matthew accounts for it this way. He says, Matthew 19 says, behold, a man came up to him saying, teacher, what must, what good, what? Deed must I do. Okay, it starts to break down here. This is beginning to point us through to this breakdown. There's, this has been in all three of the conditions so far, okay? The believing religious works can add to or, um, or solidify this salvation. So this is an audience of Jews who believe that. The second thing that Jesus points out here, and this, or the second thing that Jesus is gonna address is the second issue here is that he also elevated Jesus above all religious teachers, you have to understand this. By calling him good, there's a reason why Jesus asked why he was saying that. And this was a title reserved for those who were um, representatives of God. And so he acknowledged even, I mean, think about this seeker. He even acknowledged that Jesus was, would tell the truth on behalf of God, Right? But we'll see in a moment his misunderstanding. And it's interesting here because I think that the verbiage is really important. Matthew's account says, teacher, what good deed? 
Luke's account says, good teacher, what must I do? And so the term good is associated with Jesus, and it's associated in a different account with what he must do. And I think that's very interesting because the same goodness that he would ascribe to Jesus is the same goodness that he believes he can also do, right? And so what we're seeing here is this starting to break down where he thinks he can do good, but we're going to have clarity about all of these different breakdowns in just a second, okay? So we, let's move here because of the time's sake. I, I got to move fast and skip over a little bit of this. But he... Then Jesus gives the answer, verses 19 through 22. He asks about eternal life. This ruler calls him good teacher, asks, what must I do to have eternal life? Looks like the perfect seeker. Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, all of these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasures in heaven and come and follow me. Jesus is exposing here that this man doesn't understand what's required, nor is he ready to meet the requirements. The first obvious view of that is number uh, is letter A here, a false view of God. By Jesus' answer, he exposes this man's failure to meet the conditions. Verse 19 shows his False view of God. Gives an answer, exposes this man, and first exposes this man's false view of God. Verse 19, he says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. No matter how genuine this man seems, Jesus knows his heart. Jesus is saying this, in other words, do you believe that I'm God? Why do you call me good? No one's good except God alone. Do you believe that? Do, do you really believe that? That's the first question. You're coming to me. You believe I can have the answers. I do have the answers. Do you believe that? Do you believe that I'm God? Why do you call me good? No one's good except God alone. Is that who you think I am? And um, so... He asks that, but there's more to this. Why do you call me good? No one's good except God alone. And really, do you grasp what goodness is? Right? So are you calling me good because you believe I'm God and you understand my holiness? Right? Why do you call me good? No one's good except God alone. Do you believe I'm God and do you believe and see my perfection? And um, this is obviously um, something he doesn't believe in and understand quite right because he asks what good deeds must he do in order to what? Be saved. So he believes his goodness can uh, meet the goodness of of the requirements of the holiness of, of God. So the, the issue here is a true lack of belief in Christ and a true lack of understanding of God's holiness. And that's the standard by which someone must be measured, right? 
This is what Jesus answers first when someone asks what he must do to be saved. And Jesus did the same thing in John 6. When someone asked pretty much the same question. Here, what must I be doing to do the works of God? What, what do I do to be saved? What good deed? Jesus answered, this is the work of God that you what? Believe. And then here, the man's asking, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus says, essentially, do you believe? Do you believe I'm God? And do you believe that, uh, that I'm perfect? So there are probably deeper implications here as well. Let me say this. Because if he doesn't understand who Christ is, if he doesn't understand that he's God, if he doesn't understand his holiness, then he really has no idea of what he means by eternal life. Right? Eternal life being in the awful purity and presence of who? God. And so his view of eternal life is probably low. So all that we move here, uh, we understand here, is that there's a low view of God, there's a low view of holiness, there's a high view of self, and there's a wrong view of heaven. And Jesus is exposing all this by his question back to him. So if he responded rightly, he'd be like the tax collector a couple weeks ago who cries out for mercy rather than the Pharisee. But this man... Um, he still believes that he's got the right view. So Jesus is going to take another step in exposing this. The second thing he exposes is his false view of self. He says, okay, verses 20 through 21. You know the commandments then. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. And he said, all these I have kept from my youth. Okay, so Jesus speaks in this man's own works-based framework. And Jesus, listen now, Jesus moves on from his view of God to his view of self, and he speaks of righteousness. Why? Because righteousness is the issue for salvation. We don't have righteousness, so we're lost. We need righteousness, so Christ imputes it to us. And only the righteous can be saved. So Christ now moves to this man's righteousness or lack thereof, right? And he says, in Matthew's account, if you would enter eternal life, keep the commandments. Here in Luke's account, he says, you know the commandments, okay, if you want to know what to do. And so, which speaks of also this man being in the religious setting, because if this man was, he would know the commandments, and he did. Now, pay attention here. He cites commandments 7, 6, 8, 9, and 5, okay, and that, in that order, right? Five out of the 10. And you can find these in Exodus 20, Deuteronomy 15. Um, and, uh, and if you were to go through the Exodus account, um, you could just find them and you can see that he does them in those orders, in that order, right? Number five, which is honor your father and mother, he leaves that one last. Um, so you can do that later. In Mark's account, he gives the same thing, but he adds number 10. He says 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 5. In Matthew's account, he adds Leviticus 19, 18, which says, you shall, which ends with this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, I want you to notice here, in every one of those accounts, Jesus uses the back half of the Ten Commandments which is about what? Your relationship with what? With what? Others. The first half is your relationship to who? 
God, and your second half is your relationship to others. Jesus uses all of those in all of the accounts and purposefully does so. And then just to make it clear that he's doing this on purpose, in one of the accounts, he adds Leviticus 19, which points out, love your neighbor as yourself. He's doing this on purpose. Why? Not because the first half is unimportant. In fact, it's more important. But the reason why he does this is because it gives something concrete for this man to look at. Can he even look at his relationship to others and view that he, and see that he falls short? Any seeker can say, I love God. You can't, it's, it's, it's difficult to argue with. It's difficult to expose because their view of God might be wrong. It's tainted with their own desires. It's, there's, self, there's love for self mixed in there. I'm, I love God. I feel God. I love him. He's wonderful. But it's like all mixed with this real love for self and this false view of God. You can't, it's, it's hard to just split that up. People can say that and you can't really just argue with it. Yeah, I believe in Jesus. I know, but right, it's mixed with this half truth. It's hard. And there's this emotionalism and there's even passion for it. And it's riddled with a love for self or a false understanding of God or a false view of heaven. So Jesus instead moves to something concrete. Look at your relationship with others. You tell me that you never see your sin in that, right? I mean, this is the issue. People affirm people's salvation if it just looks sincere. And so Jesus is moving to more concrete example here your relationship with others. But instead, this only exposes the man's ignorance because he says, all these I have kept from my what? Youth. That means teen years. It's when the early teen years is when Jews would take uh, charge of their own faith. They would come into Judaism in those early teen years and it would be, and they would, they would start following it. And, um, and he says, ever since I started, I've kept it. So he was self-deceived. And really the question arises, if he thought that he kept all the commandments, why would he even ask what must he do if he thought he's already had it, right? Well, it's clear, even a seeker who would think that he keeps it, seems sincere and believes he's righteous, still knows that he falls short. He's just not ready to accept that. He wants to reject it when true freedom comes from accepting it. There's a difference between what, uh, a godly grief and a, a worldly grief? And we're gonna see that in a minute. And there's a difference and there's a conscience that God has given us. Look at this Romans 2. It says that the word of God, the word is written on our what? Or the law is written on our hearts. So here's what your conscience does. Listen, ready? It either accuses you or excuses you. You already know that you broke God's law and you know when you're breaking it. And so he knows that he falls short, but he's refusing to acknowledge that. James 2 says, whoever keeps the whole law fails at one point has become guilty of all of it. So the second, or the, what are we on? The false view of self, all right. The third one is a, now here's the true test, the false view of, of Christ. This man's already exposed himself. False view of God and his holiness, false view of self and his own righteousness or lack thereof, and now this false faith. You can't deny this one. You can say that you have the right view of God. You can say that you have a right view of self. Here's where the rubber meets the road. You can't, you can't fake this. 
So Jesus is now going to take all of this that seems like a genuine, real seeker who wants to go to heaven, comes to the right person, and he's going to say, let's see if this thing is real. Verse 22 through 23. When Jesus heard this, he said, one thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. Come follow me. When the man heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. This just isn't hard to see. Jesus calls this man to sell everything, distribute his money, not earning your salvation, but obeying Christ as the evidence that he believes. If he doesn't do what Christ says, he won't be able to follow Christ. Do you understand if you believe that Jesus is Lord, that you're a sinner, that you fall short of God's glory, that you're subject to God's judgment, that Christ is your only righteousness, and that your obedience is the evidence of your true belief, then you follow what he says. You don't make him Lord like he isn't Lord, and then you make him what he isn't. You submit to who he is. And you don't, there's no excuse not to know his word to do that. If your life does not resemble obedient living under the lordship of Christ, it's evidence of someone who doesn't believe in Christ. And so he's saying here, Jesus makes this so clear. If you do this, you will go to where? Where? You will have treasures in heaven. I mean, this, this is clear. Go sell everything. Come follow me and you will be saved. You'll have eternal life. You'll be justified. You'll go into the heaven, uh, kingdom of heaven. Give up your life now because you believe in me. For the rest of your life, come follow me. Live under my lordship. That's the true test. Anyone can say they have it. Know my word, my commands. Follow me, my truth. And uh, this is the call to true faith, right? And uh, so if you look at this, Jesus is not literally saying that this man only lacks one thing. He says, one thing you still lack. This man lacks a lot. But you know what Jesus is saying? There's one thing that will expose where your lack is. And that's your total submission to me as sovereign Lord. You say whatever you want. It's the idea of Luke chapter five, verse 11. They brought their boats to land. They left everything and they did what? Now let me point out one more thing here. We're done. Watch this. Mark's account says this. Jesus looked at him and what? Loved him. That's a pretty unique definition of love. That's a pretty countercultural view of love. You know what the most loving thing for Jesus to do was? Tell the man the truth. Expose where the man really is. That is the opposite of our definition of love, and we're loving people right into hell. This man, Jesus looked at him and loved him, so he said, drop everything and follow me, and you'll go to heaven. He didn't just befriend him for a while. He didn't just hold back the truth. He didn't just make it more affirming. He didn't just make it more attainable. He didn't just lower the bar. He looked at him and loved him, so he told him the truth. And the man rejects it. But Jesus did the most loving thing. 
he could do. That's a pretty backwards view of love than what we described today. So, we see lastly, and we're just, we're done. Let me just point this out. The response to the offer of eternal life. This is a clear offer. And uh, it's told with brevity, the answer. And uh, he says, when he heard these things, so notice this, the offer was clear. The conditions were clear. That's what we focus on. And then he chose to reject it. When he heard these things, Matthew and Mark don't even say, and, and none of them say that he said anything back to Jesus. His, his, his decisions, his actions, his attitude said it all. He didn't have to say anything. His actions said all of it. It says that Matthew and Mark's account says that he went away sorrowful. He doesn't say anything back to Jesus, and there's no evidence that Jesus ever re-engages him again. Instead, he turns to the disciples to teach him a lesson about it. And so Luke says that he becomes extremely sad, this man. But I will tell you once again, 2 Corinthians 7 says, godly grief produces what? Repentance. Worldly grief produces death. There is a worldly grief that's just sad. You can't have both. And there's a godly grief that if he was truly sad about his lack of salvation, he would have turned and trusted in Christ. And so... Let me tell you this, you cannot, emotions cannot be what's trusted as the evidence of someone's genuineness. The truth has to be what's trusted. So this man's sad, but he's not sad because of his sin and he doesn't turn to Christ. He was extremely rich, so he's unwilling to put Jesus in first place. So let me go close with this. Here's what we see. This man asks a question. Seems like a genuine seeker. The answer is about eternal life that exposes his lack of understanding. The true test that exposed all of it was lordship. Are you willing to follow me? Can't fake that one. That's why we, people, God says, you will know them by their fruit. People can say whatever they want. So let me just encourage you with this. For you yourself, if you claim to be a believer in Christ, what does your life say? What does your obedience say? What does your knowledge of the word and your following of Christ say? Secondly, in your evangelism, tell the whole truth. And point people to following Christ, not just praying some prayer, etc. So let's pray. Father, thank you for this time. I know we're over. Um, Lord, I pray for everything we've talked about today, whether it be the bookmark in the beginning or whether it be this passage. Um, I want people to read the word of God and I also pray that people would follow what your word here today has told us. That lordship, making you Lord and obeying you, following you is the true test. I pray that we would assess ourselves and that we would assess our evangelism and that we would be truly loving and um, 
And God, I pray that, uh, that you teach us from this and that we would come under your lordship. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this resource from the Field Church in Mandeville, Louisiana. We pray that it helps you joyfully make Jesus Christ your treasure.